a disastrous election in Georgia for the U.S. Senate, and a sad day in the United States of America and D.C. with the Capitol building. I'm James O'Hare, and this is Politics Today. Uh, first, let me start off this podcast with um, just a little message to my listeners. I haven't been on in a while, haven't recorded something. I uh, spent December uh, kind of taking some time off, and most importantly, sitting back and watching the developments that was happening with the electoral vote challenges uh, in the various states um, by the Trump campaign. And I didn't want to come on and really record something in the middle of it because a lot of it had already been said, and most of it was just being played out and hearing different cases occur uh, and be brought up and then shot down and nothing happening. And so I was waiting for today, January 6th, to actually come on and explain what the procedure and everything that had come up to this point. Because today really is the the last day, so to speak, of what this whole process is and what it entails. Um, January 6th, for anyone who doesn't know, which by now you probably do, is that the day that we actually certify the electoral votes in the United States Congress. So the electoral votes get to the United States Congress. They're opened up. They are read off by uh, the congressional officials. And the vice president, of course, approves them. And it's really just a formality. This is something that has never really been that big of a deal. There's been a few times in history where this has been become an issue. Uh, and it dates all the way back to about 1877. And I'll give you a real quick little recap on what it is, and then we'll get into the rest of the discussion here. So um, where this comes from is the Electoral Act of 1877. Uh, this goes all the way back to uh, right after Reconstruction and the election of Rutherford B. Hayes. And as many of you might know from your civics classes, if, the, if no one wins a majority in the Electoral College, uh, the vote then goes to the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives uh, votes and decides who is going to be the President of the United States. Uh, this, of course, in 1876 resulted in a thing known as the corrupt bargain and the end of Reconstruction with the election of Rutherford B. Hayes, even though Rutherford B. Hayes, uh, the Republican in the race, had lost the popular vote and had gotten less electoral votes. So the Electoral College or Electoral Act of 1877 was put forward to fix these issues um, of someone like that winning. Uh, and it was designed uh, to help here. And it actually put in a p- provision where you could have a senator and a representative, uh, had to be both, object to a, an electoral uh, vote and then push it into debate on the floor of the House and the floor of the Senate and to decide who the president was going to be. Now, this was supposed to be put in place where you had separate slates of electors, meaning electors uh, that were both approved basically by the state and sent to Washington, D.C., something that's very rare, doesn't happen very often, um, and there's only been a few times in history where it's come up where there's actually been disputes over the electoral vote and who won and who gets the most. Uh, it happened in uh, 2000 with the Bush-Gore um, election. In that case, Democrats were the ones who objected to the Electoral College votes. They did not have a Republican or did not have, I'm sorry, a representative or a senator uh, together. They only had representatives. Uh, it happened again in 2016 uh, with Trump. When he was elected, you had, again, representatives who spoke up and objected to the Electoral College vote, uh, but no senators then joining them. And then we have today. Um, today, in 2021, we had an objection with a representative, or actually 60 representatives, 
and a senator signed and delivered. That means we go into this part of the Electoral uh, Act of 1877 that is not ever been done in American history. So history was made today when this happened, and it forced the uh, the House and the Senate to go back to their respective chambers and sit down for an actual debate over the Electoral College vote and over the objection. Um, and this started out civilly enough. Uh, but if you've been paying attention to news lately, obviously this is a very contentious election with a lot of things going on, and it's gonna get, it got more contentious today when you had protesters who were in Washington, D.C., who were protesting the Electoral College vote, and some of those protesters, looks like a couple dozen, uh, stormed the Capitol building itself, broke windows, gained entry, and uh, began to rummage through the Capitol building, forcing a stopping of the debate and a lockdown of the Capitol building. We'll get more to that a little bit as some developments have come out in this. So needless to say, that is abhorrent. And it is a terrible thing and a sad day for America when violence is unleashed in our political system. That should never be the case. Uh, Violence should be condemned in any form that it comes in, especially political violence. Uh, I condemned violence during the BLM protests and the riots in the Portland and Antifa riots. I condemn it now. Uh, I believe anyone who entered that Capitol building uh, illegally should be arrested, should serve time in prison. That should be automatic. Um, I don't care what their motivations were. doesn't matter. They broke the law, and the law must be upheld. Uh, And even President Trump has said as much as that we need law and order. Um, Although uh, there are some calls out that he incited this violence. I'll get to some of that, too, in just a little bit. Um, But let's get back to this election. So what has come up in the debate between senators and representatives is that there is not sufficient evidence of any kind of voter fraud or irregularities that would overwhelm or overrule the voting in a state. And thus, there should not be any concern of approving electoral college votes uh, in the United States House and the United States Senate. And that Joe Biden is the president, a president-elect, and should be sworn in on January 20th. Now, that debate does have some merit to it. And I'll address its points in a second. There's another argument that's being made in the Senate and the House, and that is whether Congress itself has the right to even proclaim that electoral votes can't be accepted or not and overturn an election that was run by a state. Uh, That argument uh, has constitutional basis. There is this Electoral uh, Electoral Act of 1877, which kind of gets in the way of that argument, uh, which set up this process. So there is a valid argument there, but... I kind of think that's almost besides the point in this situation, whether they have the right to do it or not. Um, I don't think they have the right to overturn elections. I do disagree with the president on that, who who has this belief that uh, the vice president can shoot this back to the states and they can redo the election. There is no redos in our Constitution. It's not something that's constitutionally permitted uh, and therefore will not happen. So the president is wrong when tweeting out that in his, in his arguments, in my opinion, um, of what the vice president has the power to do and really what Congress has the power to do. But the bigger question here is the other part of this, the irregularities in the voting. Because if you watch any kind of mainstream media source, you see all this argument back and forth that 
there's been no evidence of fraud. There's no widespread fraud is sometimes used. Uh, that phrase, uh, there, there's no sign that anything went wrong with this election and that Joe Biden just got 80 million votes, even though he didn't campaign at all and all the other uh, criticisms of Joe Biden that he's not all there and he only had five people at his rallies, uh, but somehow he got 80 million people to come out and vote for him. Uh, and all those, are, I think, are valid criticisms. I've never seen a candidate who didn't campaign uh, break every record on voting ever in this country. I mean, that's pretty astonishing if it is true that that happened. Uh, I've also never in history has an incumbent president gotten so many votes, so many more votes than they got in the first time they ran for office and lost the the election. That's never happened either. So President Trump made history. He had the most votes for an incumbent president. Uh, he broke every mathematical kind of historical, I wouldn't say mathematical, but historical formula for winning elections uh, in the United States of America and presidential elections. He broke those. Uh, so some reason, his election was different, um, which maybe it's 2020. Who knows? So his election was different than any others. And Joe Biden, of course, got more votes than anybody ever in the history of the United States. Um, that all raises questions. In my eye, immediately, I was wondering what happened in this election that caused this to occur. Did 80 million people really come out and vote for Joe Biden? That is a 100% distinct possibility that that happened. Uh, it also, in my opinion, is a distinct possibility that it may not have happened, at least not the way that we think it happened. He may have gotten 80 million votes, but were they all legal votes that were cast for Joe Biden? That lies some questions. Now, what has happened is after the election, a series of legal challenges were launched by the Trump campaign in a group of swing states, mainly Arizona, Nevada, or Michigan, I'm sorry, uh, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, right? Those are the main states that they were uh, arguing their cases in, that there was some kind of voter irregularity. Nevada's kind of fell on its face. They had some evidence that there was illegal voting and votes that were counted twice in Clark County, and there were some uh, issues with maybe some vote dumps that weren't necessarily legal. But reality is Clark County is a heavy Democrat area, and that's where Las Vegas is. And the chances are Trump probably didn't win Clark County. So the Nevada stuff kind of trailed off pretty quickly as a loss uh, for President Trump and didn't really go anywhere. Arizona was far more compelling. The election result was very close in Arizona. There, uh, within, you know, within, what, 20,000 votes, I believe. And there was a real chance that there were some illegal votes that were cast that one would sway the election one way or the other. Arizona didn't seem to really pursue that. They did a recount in Maricopa County and a few other areas. They came up with no real discrepancies other than minor things and therefore said, nope, no problems, nothing to see here. Everything was fine. Uh, Michigan, you had some issues in Wayne County, uh, which is where Detroit is, and they had uh, excuses for their problems. They basically explained away a lot of the issues that were brought up by the Trump campaign, and the court cases were dismissed really before ever really getting into court. So uh, same thing in Pennsylvania and same thing in Georgia. The alarming thing with all this process was, and where I take issue with a lot of this arguments about uh, there's no fr no fraud, and it's all been done. You hear the Democrats say 60 cases, and they've all been lost by the Trump campaign. It's all fake. It's all made up. It's all fraud. The reality is there weren't 60 cases that were all 
made by a Trump campaign and lost by a Trump campaign. In most of these cases, they were brought by either the Trump campaign or affiliates, people that were bringing them on behalf of themselves uh, in favor of Trump. Uh, And many of them got dismissed before ever getting into a courtroom, mostly for procedural reasons. Uh, Either something wasn't filled out properly or something wasn't done properly. Uh, There was cases where there was a standing where the person suing was not the person harmed and therefore couldn't sue. Um, All sorts of reasons. But there weren't, to my knowledge yet, a full case heard out by the courts, by the Trump campaign, about voter fraud that made it all the way through the court system and was adjudicated by a judge and said, you know, this did not happen. That, to my knowledge, has not occurred. And I may be wrong on this. I'm more than happy to be proven wrong. If you know, uh, shoot me an email, shoot me a comment. Let me know of a case that you know has gone all the way through the court system uh, and been adjudicated by a court uh, and heard completely out. Um, Because I have not. Uh, Most of these cases have been dismissed before ever even entering into the courtroom over, over some kind of procedural issue outside so technically you can say okay he lost those cases because they the judge said it wasn't it didn't have any merit but it really wasn't heard and one of the most egregious ones of these of course was the supreme court case that was brought by multiple states including the trump campaign um of what 25 states altogether 23 states brought this case before the supreme court which have original jurisdiction meaning the supreme court is the only court that can hear the case it's where the court is where the case would begin didn't have to go through lower courts first. Uh, that would be a thing called appellate jurisdiction. They didn't have that. They had original jurisdiction. And again, to my knowledge, and it seems like to the knowledge of many of the people on the Supreme Court, or at least two of the Supreme Court justices, I haven't heard of a Supreme Court case that had original jurisdiction in which the Supreme Court didn't hear the case at all. And this situation, this case gets to the Supreme Court about... Uh, fraud in Georgia or irregularities I should say in Georgia and in, and in Pennsylvania I believe and, and there's no hearing. Supreme Court said we're not going to hear it. They, instead they said you don't have standing to sue. Meaning as a state you can't sue this other state. Not, this isn't a reason. It's not your fight. It doesn't represent you uh, and therefore you can't sue. Um, and I've heard the legal arguments about this. Whether a state can sue another state um, over something that happens in that other state. I don't know. I think national election affects all states, and so I, th- I did think the states did have standing to sue in this. And so it looked like Clarence Thomas believed that, um, and it still didn't get heard uh, by the Supreme Court. Um, and a lot of this plays into the psyche of the court system itself. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. But I can tell you that when it comes to the three branches of government and their checks and balances on each other, there are certain things prescribed in the Constitution that go to certain branches, the powers. And it's rare to see one branch of government willingly interfere with another branch of government's powers without very compelling evidence to do so. And that's what the Supreme Court, I think, was doing in this case. And most of the courts, I think, were doing in this case. They weren't necessarily looking at these cases on their actual merits. Rather, they were politically looking at these cases as what the implication would be if a court overturned an election in a particular state and what the, how that would affect the outcome of the election. And thus, if it was outcome determinative, they would be actually making a decision which would change the course of the election. And therefore, I think many of these courts and judges looked at that as beyond their 
scope as a judge uh, in the judicial branch. That they're not supposed to interfere with the legislative branch or the executive branch and prevent them from doing their duly uh, constitutional authority that was given to them by the Constitution. That's what I think really played into these decisions. And when it came to the Supreme Court decision, it's clear that the Supreme Court denied this case and didn't even take it or look into it because they didn't want the implication of what they would have to do. And they weren't even being asked to overturn the election. They were simply being asked to throw the election to the House of Representatives and not basically disqualify the states that were in dispute and then throw it to the House of Representatives and then make a decision. So they weren't asked to make a determination, but by getting rid of those electoral votes, they would have been interfering with the election in some capacity. So all of that to say, these court cases were really non-court cases. They weren't really adjudicated and heard out. We didn't really hear the evidence that was supposedly presented. We did hear lots of different meetings with state legislatures by Giuliani and the rest of the Trump legal team, which brought up all of their accusations and evidence and affidavits and were somewhat convincing uh, that there was some level of impropriety in this election that could have had a outcome-determinative conclusion. Uh, but I will fault the Trump team on this. They had a lot of time. They would say, legally speaking, they didn't. But I think they had a lot of time to put together compelling arguments for this and really show evidence. And they didn't really have the evidence. They had stories about the evidence, but they didn't have hard numbers data. They had a lot of numbers about how many votes they believe were impacted and how many votes could be illegal. And some of those were very compelling. You know, if if a vote was counted while no one was present, um, as far as the law says that observers to watch the vote, if the state law said that and the vote was still counted, that was clearly an illegal vote and should not be counted. The same goes for if you have an, uh, an illegal immigrant who votes and is not legal to live in the state or the or in the country and casts a vote for the president. Uh, as soon as that's discovered, that vote must be discarded. That is an illegal vote. It cannot count. Uh, so those are basic concepts that we, we have to have. It's called, and that's called election integrity is what that's called. And there's lots of stories of this. There are lots of affidavits you know, signed on, on a you know, penalty of perjury saying that that was the case. But not a lot of investigation. That was the thing I think that frustrates Trump supporters the most in this whole argument. And that is that the evidence that was supposed to be so compelling wasn't really being produced by the Trump campaign and by the Trump legal team. But there was always around the horizon this idea that there's going to be this evidence that comes out. If only these states would look into their election systems and really go in deep and find the fraud. And there seemed to be an unwillingness by these states, many of them Republican-controlled, to even delve into their election system and actually look at the data itself. There was recounts. There was comparisons between the Dominion voting machines or the voting machines in whatever particular state and the number of votes cast and saying, okay, they're the same number of votes. Uh, Although in Georgia, they did find like 3,000 votes for Trump uh, and there's only 11,779 vote margin. So that was kind of a big deal. Um, But again, there, there were basic audits where you just looked at the number of votes, looked at the number of the machine said, 
compared the two, and that was it. The numbers matched. They said, okay, it looks like everything was legit, right? The only issue you have with that is that's not a forensic audit, which is what the Trump campaign and Trump legal team were asking for. They were asking to compare signatures. They were asking to go in there and actually look at the machines themselves and see if anything had been tampered with these machines. I mean, weeks had gone by since the election. There was no access to this stuff. And uh, they're still pending uh, audits in some of these states. The most egregious one of these is Georgia. So we're all everything I'm getting to here is a lead up to what happened today and why it happened and why it's unacceptable and what the solutions might be. So bear with me here. Georgia is where we're going to pinpoint this down to. Georgia's been the focus in this election ever since they started counting the ballots. And in Georgia, there was a consent decree done between the governor and the state legislature uh, and the secretary of state for the for the Georgia for Georgia with um, Democrat leaders led by Stacey Abrams, in which they changed a lot of their voting requirements, made it easier for verification of votes, um, allowing voting to just be generally easier and larger amounts of mail-in voting. Uh, this instantly became an issue, uh, especially in counties like Fulton County, which is Atlanta, Georgia, which is also a heavily populated county with lots of voters. So, and there are Democrat voters in the majority. So this became an issue there. Now, as they counted votes, of course, they go back and forth, and there's these big data dumps of votes, and, of course, uh, Trump loses and Joe Biden wins by a very, very small margin, 11,779 votes. And there's a lot of accusations that there's a lot of funny business that happened in Fulton County, Georgia. Now, the Trump campaign was asking for an audit of Fulton County, Georgia, because there had been video evidence that had come out um, that in one of the counting centers, there had been a situation where a quote-unquote water main broke, and there was no water main break, and people were told to leave, and that the counting would stop and then continue once everything was ready. And then the counting continued as soon as everyone was gone, and there's these people in the video taking suitcases or boxes full of ballots out from underneath the desk and continuing to count them. Now, the Fulton County officials and the Secretary of State for Georgia says, nothing to see here. Uh, this was normal operating stuff. This is what we do all the time, um, apparently. And uh, although they did say there were some problems and some management issues, but they were acting as if this is no big deal, that they went and counted all these votes with nobody present, even though that would violate, seemingly, Georgia law, and that should have been something of very much a concern. And there was a lot of votes counted in this time, and they did seem to correspond with heavy Biden totals that came out during the same time. Something that would point you in the direction that maybe you should look into this, that perhaps if you have accusations of voter fraud, you have video evidence of something that looks fishy, not to say that it is, because uh, the Georgia officials did say that they looked into it and it was nothing. But the Trump campaign or legal team wasn't allowed to go that far into it. And that's, therein lies the issue. Then you have the situation with the Georgia Secretary of State himself. There's a guy named Brad Raffensperger. This guy, I'm sorry to say, is the one of the worst elected officials I've ever seen in my life. So the Georgia Secretary of State, who claims to be a Republican, he loves to say that. In fact, he goes on TV all day on every Sunday show, and he says how much he's a Republican and how much he wishes Trump won, but it's just not the case. 
And at the same time, he's refusing to do basic audits and basic investigations that are being requested into the voting uh, accusations of, of irregularities. And this is proof. There's proof of this. Now, this is not a conspiracy theory, and this is not some kind of um, fringe idea uh, of fraud that's being perpetuated out there. Here's where the evidence lies. A phone call was made the other week between the Trump, uh, between President Trump himself and his campaign, his lawyers, and Brad Raffensperger and his lawyer for the Georgia Secretary of State's office. In the phone call, lots of stuff was said. In fact, this phone call made national news because it was leaked to the Washington Post and then published. And in this phone call, uh, they, they do try to make Trump look bad because he's pressuring the Georgia Secretary of State to find him votes, as it said. But if you really listen to the whole call, which I did, it's an over an hour long, and you listen to the whole call, sure, Trump can be very assertive at times in it, wanting to find these votes, but he constantly is saying that there was illegal votes cast, and that they, or they believe there was illegal votes cast. They believe there's evidence of this if it was just looked into, and they were wondering why they hadn't looked into it. Now, a lot of Trump's numbers were all over the place. Uh, he clearly has been kind of, in my opinion, mixing up a lot of the different cases that were going forward. Uh, I think Trump is a guy who likes to simplify things. He likes to exaggerate and simplify. So exact numbers aren't his forte. Uh, that should be his lawyer's forte. But it didn't seem like they were very much on the ball. So they had these numbers. And the kind of numbers were wild. They're kind of out there, not, not exactly exact. But where the key thing came in in the conversation, and this is something that was kind of overlooked by the media. The media was busy trying to bash Trump the whole time. And they didn't really look at this. There's a point in this conversation where President Trump asked Raffensperger why they haven't done the forensic audit as promised in Fulton County. And Raffensperger's lawyer, along with Raffensperger, say they will do a forensic audit in Fulton County. They just haven't done it yet. And that, I found, is very interesting. For someone who's gone on national television multiple times and said there is zero evidence of fraud, that they have checked everything and they know there's no fraud, and he's very adamant that the election was done perfectly and there was no fraud done in the state of Georgia, how would somebody know that if they hadn't even done the forensic audit that has been requested and been planned for for an entire, almost one of the most populous counties in Georgia? One where it is assumed that the fraud would have occurred. That, to me, was very, very interesting. Because if you knew that fraud might have occurred, like you knew that there's accusations of fraud for this county, you've said that, hey, we're going to go check this county out, we're going to look into it, do a forensic audit of it, make sure it's all legit, why wouldn't you do that quickly and get it done? Probably, perhaps, before the electoral college vote in which your state would approve the Electoral College votes to send to Washington, D.C. That didn't make any sense, especially from someone claiming to be a Republican and they wish Trump won and they really just, oh, he just didn't win and it's just too bad he couldn't win Georgia. That's, that's too bad. Raffensperger, too bad he couldn't win. Uh, also, Raffensperger leaked the call to the Washington Post. Uh, so it shows how much of a Republican he really is um, to leak a call with the president and then go out and disparage the president and say that, Nothing was, uh, uh, nothing was, you know, bad in Georgia or fraudulent in Georgia. When he hasn't even checked, and by his own admission, he hasn't even checked the most populous county 
and the one where the fraud is being assumed and being accused, and he hasn't even looked at it. But yet goes on national TV and speaks as if he's clairvoyant, and he knows that this is just going to be the case, that there's going to be no fraud. So that was an important development in Georgia. The next big development we have in Georgia is the Senate race. Now remember, all of this is leading up to the events that happened today. So everything is connected. Now, the Georgia Senate race was the runoff race between Raphael Warnock and Loeffler, Kelly Loeffler, and then David Perdue, the Republican, versus John Ossoff, the Democrat. Now, Ossoff and Warnock are very far left Democrats. Very socialist tendencies. The things that come out of Raphael Warnock's mouth are just crazy. Um, And something that everyone should take very seriously that these people would be in the United States Senate. They won. Spoiler alert. They have been proclaimed the winners. Of course, David Perdue said he's going to fight it. It doesn't look like that's a possibility. It looks like it's over. The Republicans have lost in Georgia. The Democrats have taken over. And Georgia has flipped from from red to blue. It's done. Now, they have a Republican governor and a Republican secretary of state. But those guys are gone. They are. They're they're weaklings. They're not really Republicans. They they're gone. They're not going to withstand any any Democrat assault on them in the next election. It's over for them. They've lost. They can't win a statewide election in that state. It's gone. They they've, they've handed it over to the Democrats at this point. And part of the reason is they they were very weak. They allowed changes in their system that allowed for some shady stuff to happen down in Georgia. And uh, that's it. it. That's how what's happened now in Georgia, and it's, it's switched over. So we are in a dire situation now as a republic where we have Democrat control of the presidency with Joe Biden, Democrat control of the House, led by a very extreme Nancy Pelosi, and now we have Democrat control of the Senate led by another extreme person, Chuck Schumer. And these people will, in the first two years, because that's really what this is, a two-year run, they're going to completely dismantle everything that Trump did to try to reverse the Obama years in this country. And so it's all going to go away. In that light, that is the situation that brings people to Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. gets flooded with people today on January 6th, the day that the Electoral College certification vote is supposed to be. Trump gave a speech earlier today where he basically uh, gave kind of a mirror speech to what he gave over in Georgia the other day, uh, where he was stumping for Loeffler and, per, per, and Purdue. And he gives this kind of speech like, hey, the election was stolen from me, and we're going to fight it, right? And get rid of the weak Republicans, and we're going to fight this. Now, many of the media is turning this into he's inciting violence. He didn't incite any violence. He didn't tell anybody to go do anything violent. He did tell them to march on the Capitol and let your voices be heard. But in no way did he say, go storm the Capitol and break in and smash things and go into the House and the Senate chambers. He, he didn't say that. But I can see how he the, the crowd was pretty ginned up by what he was doing. And, of course, uh, we had violence break out during the vote on the floor or during the debate on the floor over the Electoral College certification. 
which is 100% unacceptable, and everyone involved in that should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. It's not how we do things in the United States of America. You do not riot. You do not cause property damage. You do not destroy or damage the capital of the United States of America. While the constitutional process is playing out, that was the most frustrating part in this. The process was playing out. And worse off, even if this process played out, nothing was going to change. The Democrats have control of the House. They would have voted down any kind of objection. And you still would have had a certification vote done. And that was it. It wasn't going to change whether you stormed or burned down the building. It wasn't going to do a single thing to change any of that. So the ignorance of the people in the crowd that did go into the building and did cause destruction and damage and assaulted police officers and resulted in the death of a young woman who was killed in the Capitol building because of that behavior. That is unacceptable, and it is should be condemned all, all the way. Never allowed in our system. So with that said, we now are at the crossroads where we have a situation where... On January 20th, you have a new president going to be taking over because the reality is the the Trump battle is done. Trump doesn't have any more time to fight his battle out. I believe his legal team failed him. I believe they weren't able to make a compelling case. I believe Republicans uh, around the country in leadership positions failed the president. Uh, at a time when it was very important that Republicans stood together and really kind of fought. Uh, even if there was, even if, if no evidence of fraud came out after the investigations, that would have been a good thing. It would have been positive. It would have proven that there wasn't a problem in our election system and would have put many people's uh, minds at ease. Maybe not the president's, because the president, of course, thinks it's stolen. He's going to think that forever. But for millions of Americans, had there been proper investigations done in each state, fully investigating this, a lot of their minds would have been put at ease that this would have uh, had a solution and that the solution was correct. Uh, and you may not have had this situation happen today in which you're the storming of a capital. So what are the solutions to what happened and what we're going to do moving forward? It's my opinion that the people who stormed the Capitol today, although they were wrong and they're ignorant and they didn't do the right thing, the people who are protesting, I should say, in Washington, D.C., are frustrated they're frustrated with the state of our politics. They're frustrated with state, the fact they're not being heard by anybody. Uh, that when they are saying, hey, there's something wrong here, and everyone's saying, no, 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 you're wrong. They're tired of a media that constantly uh, has this perpetuates them as racists and as dumb or ill-informed when you have a media that is consistently caught lying about things uh, in order to fit their narrative. Uh, you saw that a lot, even with the reporting of this of this um, storming of the Capitol, as bad as it was, you had Democrat politicians coming out and saying, oh, the BLM protests were, were peaceful, and there wasn't anything wrong with them, and this is horrible, when the reality is they both were horrible. They both ended up being riots and causing destruction and death. So, no, they're all bad. you got to call out everything when it's bad. But the real solution to this is to eliminate the swamp creatures, as they are called. Many times uh, when Trump was running for office, the swamp was brought up. President Trump, and the reason why he had a lot of support, is President Trump was really the only thing standing between the American people and the swamp. The swamp controls it. The swamp is Washington. 
and these politicians, and they're not just Washington. It's just the establishment politicians in various states in Washington and government state houses throughout the country who have maintained grips on power, mostly due to ill-informed and ignorant voters who haven't known any better about what they're doing. They've manipulated the situation to keep themselves in control, and they do not have the best interest of the United States people, the, the American people, or the people of their states at all. Uh, these are you know, people like Mick, Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney and this Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. These people who have been in power, take power, and have no intention of ever giving it up. They thrive off of this. You know, Mitch McConnell's been one of the most upsetting ones. He's constantly been outmaneuvered in the Senate. Constantly. By a Democrat minority in the Senate. And a fairly weak Democrat majority in that House. And he still gets outmaneuvered every turn. And I hold him personally responsible for the loss in Georgia of the United States Senate seats. Partially. The other part is I do hold Loeffler and Purdue responsible. If you listen to them speak, like Loeffler spoke tonight in her uh, rescinding of her objection to the Electoral College vote, it's clear this woman's not charismatic and has no ability to inspire a crowd at all. I mean, they, these, these Republicans don't fight. They have no fight in them. Trump did, Trump does, have fight in him. That's what people like about him. He has a lot of other problems that people don't like about him. But he does fight. He doesn't give up easily, as you can see. And that's important. You know, we're talking about figuratively fighting here, not literally fighting, but he figuratively fights. And he doesn't give up. And that's important in a politician. And it's not in the Republican Party. It doesn't exist. There's this attitude of pleasing that always happens in a Republican Party. Like they're going to get yelled at if they do something or they cause too much trouble if they're too loud. They're going to get in trouble. Right, Their mom is going to tell them to turn the music down and they're going to be punished for a week and lose their Xbox if they say something. And that's the big problem we have with the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell had a chance to really help out his uh, two senators who are running in Georgia. When the $2,000 vote came for raising the stimulus money for people, and he shot it down. That was the death nail, I think, to those two candidates. Mitch McConnell said, I don't care about you people of Georgia. Vote no on my candidates and vote for the revolutionary people who are going to give you everything you ever wanted. Now, do I think Mitch McConnell should be handing out money to win elections? No, I don't think that's a smart move. But what Mitch McConnell screwed up on was a lot of things. One was this omnibus bill. I mean, there's lots of things. I don't want to go all the way back, but we'll start with the most recent one. The omnibus bill that was in the trillions and the $900 billion um, coronavirus stimulus bill that were combined in the House and then combined in the Senate so they could pass as one, where a lot of the confusion came. Even the president was confused on all this money and had said that he would veto it and that he wanted cuts and all this different spending because they were sending millions, billions, and billions of dollars to other countries. That was all thrown together on purpose. It was thrown together to try to prevent anyone from voting against it. Now, Mitch McConnell could have split that up. He could have split it up into two separate bills, voted the omnibus spending bill down and then voted yes on the uh, on the omnibus budget bill and then voted yes on the coronavirus stimulus bill. He could have did that. He didn't. Instead, they threw it all to the president. The president said he wouldn't sign it. 
and then comes back. Then there was this argument over $2,000. Uh, then it ends up getting passed and signed by the president. And the president says, you know, hey, I want the $2,000. I want these other things. Please promise me you'll do it. And then those things are attached to the $2,000 bill to try to make the president happy. But really, it's just to make Mitch McConnell happy. And then Mitch McConnell knows it's going to fail. He knows the Democrats will vote it down. And Mitch McConnell thought he was being smart. Thought he was going to fool the Democrats at the last minute into passing something he wanted them to pass. And the Democrats had the cards the whole time. They're running this election in Georgia. They're playing 3D chess. They're not worried about this bill and signing $2,000 and being forced to sign it. They're like, you're not going to be in power, Mitch McConnell, in a matter of days. We're going to win this, the Senate seats, and you're no longer going to be majority leader. But this guy was too dumb to figure that out, that he was being outsmarted, and he outsmarted him damn self. And that brings a second part of this. Either Mitch McConnell himself is that dumb, which 36 years in the Senate, something tells me he's not. There's a reason why he's majority leader. That brings a second reason this could be happening. So he's not dumb, and he's not getting outmaneuvered. If he's not dumb, and he's not getting outmaneuvered, then he's willingly going along with it. And that's even more serious. And this is something I harkened back to a couple podcasts back when I talked about why Republicans are weak and why they don't fight alongside with Trump on certain things. And the reason why they don't do that is there's a lot of people in the establishment swampy Republican land. right? These are Republicans who like their power, they like their positions. They like all the donor money that comes in. And they honestly think they're elitist and they, they don't need to be like the common person. These Republican politicians thrive off of this and they don't want to be in charge. Let me say that again. They don't want to be in charge. I am arguing that Mitch McConnell doesn't want to be majority leader. He is majority leader because an election put him there. But he doesn't want that position. Republicans, like him, want to be in the minority. They want someone to blame for all the issues. They want to sit back and go to their constituents and say, I'm going to fight to stop the Democrats every chance I get. I'm not going to let them pass legislation. I'm going to filibuster it. I'm going to stop it. Just donate some more money to me. That's what it is. They raise crazy amounts of money when they're in the minority because people continually vote and continually throw money their way and fundraise for them because there's that dream that they're going to get back in power. And once they're in power, all those things that they said they're going to fight for and they're going to fight against like lowering spending and, you know, getting, uh, you know, free market solutions to different problems, all those things that they preach and they love, they're never going to do when they're in power. We saw it happen with the Obamacare the repeal. Back when Trump first took office and the Republicans had control of the House and the Senate, and they had a chance to repeal Obamacare, and it was voted down. And people like John McCain said, nope, not going to vote for that, voting it down. Why? Because they didn't want to do it. Because they never had a solution. They never bothered to come up with a solution. Because they never thought they would need a solution. They thought they would just stay in the minority. They would continue fighting these paper tigers. 
and then eventually uh, they would raise so much money, their campaigns would be full, and they can continue to go to Washington, continue going home and saying, look how much work we're doing and how hard we're fighting for you, uh, even though they're never getting anything really accomplished, uh, maybe obstructing a bill every now and then. And now they've lost that power. And I think they're happy for it. Because Mitch McConnell will sit there and campaign and send ads out, all asking people to give them money and donate and fund their next campaign so that they can retake the Senate will be the next thing. Retake the Senate. That's what we have to do now. It's just the latest gimmick for you to jump on support of the Republican Party and try to help them out. The reality is the solution to this is the elimination of all the establishment Republicans. Trump did something. He changed a party in one respect. He was full of bad characteristics. I know I have a lot of listeners who like Trump and support him. I get you. But he has a lot of bad qualities. He's very combative to a fault sometimes. His ego gets in his way, I think, sometimes. And he's not politically astute enough. I know some people will definitely disagree with me, and I'll get comments about this. But I don't think he's politically astute. I think he's got a lot better since being president for four years. He's learned a lot about who to have around him and how to function with the government. But he's not the most politically astute person around. We need Republicans who have the fight that Trump has with the political acuity of a seasoned politician who knows how to operate Washington. You mix those two things together and you have an unstoppable force in this country that people are yearning for, that the American people want, that 75 million people support, and countless other millions would jump on if they had that. Because the other party doesn't have that. They have just as many weaklings as the Republican Party has. Just their weaklings are more conniving than our weaklings. That's the difference. So that is the major problem here. In my personal opinion, Mitch McConnell should resign tomorrow from the United States Senate. He's presided over a disastrous election in which he's lost the United States Senate after holding it. He has no business being there anymore. His vote really doesn't matter anymore. He's from Kentucky. Another Republican will run and take his seat. We don't have anything to worry about losing a Republican seat now. We don't need his leadership. There is none. Just eliminate him. He's gone. Mitt Romney, I think Mitt Romney will switch to being a Democrat pretty soon. Joe Manchin, he's a Democrat, he might switch to being a Republican, so that might be a wash. We might get a Democrat, or we might gain a Republican with Joe Manchin, and we should lose a Republican with um, Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney is a Democrat, he's not a Republican, he goes around and parades like one, but he's not. And that's only because he runs in a more conservative state. Um, If he was running in Massachusetts, he'd be a full-blown Democrat. So... Uh, he can't be trusted to go along anything. He's a swamp creature like the rest of them. So there's a lot in the swamp that needs to be cleaned up. It began with Trump. He began the cleanup process. The cleanup process will have to continue. But it's got to continue through the legal electoral system. We cannot continue to clean up the swamp with an electoral system that may be flawed. So an investigation must be launched into all these Uh, into this federal election, find out what really happened, fix any problems. If there are any problems, they are fixed. And then we go through the process of eliminating those in the Republican Party and those in leadership that do not have the best interest of the American people at heart. And we put the fighters in who are going to fight for us and get 
the things that Americans want, the principles that the United States stands for, and fight for those principles. We have a lot of fighting to do with Democrat control of the House and of the Senate and the end of the presidency. There's going to be a lot of fighting to do. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be coming down the line over the next two years that are really going to be hard for the American people to take. And we need strong people in Washington if we're going to be able to fight those things off. So with that all said, I want to close out by condemning once again the behavior of people in Washington, D.C., who are not seeing the bigger picture here and are focusing on the short-term goals of this election, which is all but gone and behind us on January 20th. And I want people to recommit themselves to solving the electoral problems we have in this country and making sure that they do not continue, they do not happen again, and to bring the fight to Washington politically and bring back and stand up for our country. I'm James O'Hara. This is Politics Today. I appreciate all you guys for listening. Remember, you can follow me on Facebook at Politics Today. I'm on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, Politics Today with James O'Hara. And you can always email me at politicstodayjro at gmail.com. So I look forward to hearing your message. Share this podcast out to everybody. Let's take back the United States. Let's stand up for America. Thank you.